We are in chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, and basically everything we've covered so far in the first part of 2 Samuel is the triumphs of David's reign. It was very episodic, just a story here and a story there and a story there. It was about um, David's successes, his triumphs, how he's a godly man, the things he's done well. And basically, the central focus in that section is the Davidic covenant, where God makes a promise to him that no matter what, he will never reject David as king, he will never reject him as his anointed one, and that he will make his line eternal, and his descendants will always sit on the throne. Now we enter into the next division, which is chapters 10 through 20, and this is where everything begins to fall apart. And basically the focus here is on David becoming kind of cocky with power. And he begins to abuse power, and that leads to lots of problems and his family falling apart. Now, there's other things that have been happening in his family over the years that the Bible hasn't talked about, but we're going to start seeing the result of that as well um, that's been going on. So now we're entering into serial narrative. And the serial, serial narrative is 2 Samuel chapter 10 through 20. And this is basically where we're going to have like a flow of thought narrative where one story is going to lead into the other and to the other. And what's interesting here is in this time period, Yahweh is only mentioned in 2 Samuel 12, chapter 12, as the judgment that God has against him at the very end. And then again in 2 Samuel chapter 15, when David is fleeing his son. So in all these chapters, Yahweh is barely mentioned. And the idea is that um, David is not really pursuing God in this time. He has gotten very powerful, very wealthy, and that has made him self-reliant and self-dependent. And that is going to be reflected in his choices that he makes and also in the consequences. And it's not until literally everything is ripped out of his hands because of his sin, his arrogance, and pride, and autonomy that he's actually going to begin to turn back to God in that kind of a sense. So we're entering to a very dark time period. And one almost thinks if there was no Davidic covenant, he would be screwed. So chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the setup. Obviously, the most famous story of David's entire life is the David and Bathsheba story. And that's chapter 11. But chapter 10 is the setup for that. And it sets up why chapter 11 is able to happen when you see the events of chapter 10. So in chapter 10, the Ammonites, which are on the eastern side of the Jordan River, when you cross the Jordan River, you go into the territory that's called Gilead. And that Gilead region is the region that Israel owns. They occupy that through Gad, half of Manasseh, and Reuben. Then when you exit out of that into like the desert plateau region going further east, that's the Ammonites. The Ammonites are one of the last nations that David has to subjugate. Well, it doesn't have to. He chooses to subjugate. The Moabites have already been subjugated. The Edomites, the Ammonites are one of the last. And so he hasn't really seen a need to really subjugate them because the previous king was Nahash. And remember, Nahash was the king when Saul first became king in chapter 10 and 11 of 1 Samuel. Nahash was the guy who came to Israel, Gilead, 
and said, Jabesh Gilead specifically, and said, I'm going to kill you all. And they're like, no, let us live and we'll make a treaty and become your slaves. And he said, only if you gouge out your right eyes. And Saul came and rescued them because that was his hometown through his mother's side. Somewhere along the line, David has developed good relations with Nahash. And they've become allies, friends as much as politicians can become friends with each other. Mutual alliances. And Nahash is now dead and his son is taking over. But his son doesn't want to really think of himself as an ally of David as much as his father did. So there might be more of this young, I've got to prove myself, I'm going to throw the treaty and the yoke of Israel off and I'm going to establish my own self. Which leads to David having to subjugate them now rather than having a treaty and alliance with them. And so that's kind of the background that sets this up of chapter 10. So chapter 10 verse 1. Later the king of the Ammonites died, Nahash, and his son, Hunan, succeeded him. And David said, I will express my loyalty to Hunan, son of Nahash, just as his father was loyal to me. So David sent his servants with a message expressing sympathy over his father's death. And when David's servants entered the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite official said to their lord Hanan, Do you really think David is trying to honor your father by sending these messengers to express his sympathy? No, David has sent his servants to you to get information about the city and spy on it so that he can overthrow it. So he's getting really bad paranoia advice. This is actually an enemy, not an ally. So Hanan seized David's servants, shaved off half of each one of their beards, and he cut the lower part of their robes off so that their buttocks were exposed, and then sent them on their way. So this is incredibly humiliating. And the Hebrew, the idea is the front and the back was cut away from their robes. And they're sent back completely exposed, which would be incredibly humiliating in our culture, especially in their culture where even males don't even show their legs or ankles in public. And he's sending them back, and not only that, he's shaving half of their beard. Now, a beard was a sign of, like, authority, respect, manhood, and maturity. And to shave, and you, when you became an adult, specifically when you became 30 years old, which is the age that you have to be in order to have leadership over other people, that's when you grew out your beard. And so this is like reducing them back to little children by shaving half their beard off. Not only is it humiliating, but these grown men have no beard, which is basically he's made them look like toddlers. And then he's publicly humiliated them and exposed them. Now remember, they're David's ambassadors. And so this is as if he has done it to David. If, if we send an ambassador to Russia... And the president, Vladimir Putin, did this to our ambassadors. The president, America, would take that as if it had been done to him personally and to our country personally. So this is incredibly humiliating, and they're fighting words. The messengers, verse 5, told David what had happened. So he summoned them, for the men were thoroughly humiliated. And the king said, stay in Jericho until your beards have grown again, and then you may come back. So David protects their dignity by putting them in Jericho. Jericho is an outlying city. It's very small. It's more of a military kind of a post than it is an actual city. And he allows them to stay there until their beards grow back so that they don't have to enter into the public life humiliated in that kind of a way. The idea is he's done this to me, and we're going to deal with this now. Verse 6. 
When the Ammonites realized that David was disgusted with them, they sent and hired 20,000 foot soldiers from Aram Beth Rahab and Aram Zabah, in addition to 1,000 men from the king of Ma'akah and 12,000 men from Ishtab. So they realized they kind of made a mistake. And so they hired tons of mercenaries to protect them because they know a war is coming. I don't know how they thought he was going to react. Like, what fool doesn't investigate the enemy before they go into battle? When David heard the news, he sent Joab and the entire army to meet them. The Ammonites marched out and were deployed for a battle at the entrance of the city of Gate. And while the men from Aram Zabah and Rahab and Ishtab and Ma'akah were by themselves in the field. So the regiments are divided. When Joab saw, or jo, yeah, Joab saw that the battle would be fought on two fronts, he chose some of the Israelites' best men and deployed them against the Ar- Armenians. He put his brother Abishai in charge of the rest of the army, and they were deployed against the Ammonites. And Joab said, if the Armenians start to overpower me, you come to my rescue. If the Ammonites start to overpower you, I will come to your rescue. Be strong, let's fight bravely for the sake of our people and the cities of our God. And Yahweh will do with what he decides is best. So Joab and and his men marched out to do battle with the Armenians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw the Armenians flee, they fled before his brother Abishai and went into the city. And Joab withdrew from the fighting of the Ammonites and returned to Jerusalem. So this is the first attack and the first wave. And what this shows is that God is with Israel. He's giving them victory. He's with Israel. He's providing protection for them. So now we enter the second wave. Verse 15, when the Armenians realized that they had been defeated by Israel, they consolidated their forces. Then Hadazazar sent Armenians from beyond the Euphrates River, and they came to Helam, Helam, Shabak, and the general commanded of Hadazar's army led them. So now they're employing people from Mesopotamia, all the way in the north. They need as much help. Now this is significant, because the Armenians, the Aram, is a very powerful force in the ancient world at this time. The Mesopotamians are a very powerful force at this time. And what this is showing is that none of them are able to threaten Israel in any kind of way. God is with them. And the greatest armies that are out there, like Russia and China allying themselves against us, are having no effect on the people of God because Yahweh is with David and he's Yahweh is with the nation. Verse 17, when David was informed, he gathered all of Israel, crossed the Jordan River, and came to Halam. And the Armenians deployed their forces against David and fought with him. The Armenians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 Armenian chariots, charioteers, and 40,000 foot soldiers. And he also struck down Shabak, the general in command of the army, who died there. And when all the kings who were subject to Hadazar saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subjects of Israel, and the Armenians were no longer willing to help the Ammonites. So these giant superpowers decide that it's better to make a treaty with Israel after getting the rear ends handed to them than decide with the Ammonites. So now the Ammonites are completely by themselves. But notice that everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Job is fighting, Abishai is fighting, and David is fighting. They're all in this war, and they're all fighting. And that's important. The Ammonites have not been completely subjugated yet. 
But the idea is that winter has come. In the ancient world, you do not fight in winter. That's the rainy season for them. It's the cold. Horses, chariots, it's not good fighting season. I mean, I know American Civil War, we just fought no matter what weather it was all the time. But they didn't do that in the ancient world. They fought in the spring and they fought in the summer. So that's where chapter 11 picks up. So chapter 10 ends, the Ammonites are not defeated, but everybody goes home because it's winter time and they kind of hunker down. 